We're talking about contentment, the key to happiness. Let's start out today with a question. What is the one thing that is separating you from godly joy? We're going to have a fill in the blank. I will be happy when blank happens. I'll be happy when you fill in the blank. I'll, I'll finally be happy when I get married. Or maybe for some of you, when I'm single. I will be happy when we have a baby. Others, I'll be happy when we stop having babies. Some will say, I'll be happy when I'm rich. Others, I'll be happy when I get my dream job. Others, I'll be finally happy when I am able to retire. Now, the fact is, all of us, I think, have something that we uh, we're, would like to have happen in our life. Now, with our answer firmly in our mind, consider this. If that doesn't happen, if your ship never comes in, can you still have joy? Can you still find a way to have peace? If not, you have been strangled by the thorns of discontentment. That's what Jesus said in one of the parables. He said it's, it's like the cares of riches are like thorns. They just strangle out anything that's healthy and good. Paul said it this way in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 11, I have learned, and boy, what a lesson I've learned. And whatsoever state I am, no matter what happens in life, I've learned to be content. Now, was he always excited about going through it? Was he just thinking, this is the best thing ever? No, of course not. But an inner joy, an inner peace, an inner contentment, he just had found a way to find that. Really, ultimately, genuine contentment simply says, while it would be nice to have a child, while it would be nice to be retired, while it would be nice to have my dream job, the fact is, if I have Jesus... I have enough. I have Jesus. I have enough. And that's really the theme of what we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to take another uh, uh, shot at this uh, discontentment that we've been talking about and how to learn to make Jesus everything. Let's all bow our heads for the prayer. Father, we thank you for the blessings today. Lord, the rousing worship, Lord, the encouraging testimonies of giving the beautiful music, Lord, our hearts have been stirred, the warm fellowship. But now, Lord, I pray you will collect our minds. And Father, give us gifts, not only to listen, but Lord, I pray you'll give me a gift to speak in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's go to 1 Timothy chapter 6, if you would. We're going to read it out loud for a couple of verses here, a passage from chapter 6 of 1 Timothy, the first epistle. To Timothy, this is a pastoral epistle, not written to a specific church, but to a, a man of God. And since we're children of God, we get to get in on that. We're going to read verses 6 through 10. Ready? Begin out loud. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us be therewith content. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, 
which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. The senior pastor Paul is writing to his associate Timothy, who is pastoring in the very, um, very interesting city of Ephesus, a city in Asia Minor. Timothy was his son in the Lord, very special to his heart. And he said, Timothy, I, wanna, I want you to address something in your church. He said, I want you to talk about discontentment because this issue is, it is so wide-ranging in our churches. People are becoming discontent, and it is affecting seriously their spiritual lives. If there was such a thing as a contentment scale, you know, kind of like when you go into a hospital and the nurse asks you, what is your pain level on a scale of one to ten? And you're hurting so bad, you're like, why, why do you ask that stupid question, I'm hurting? I don't know, 10, 11, 20, I don't know what my pain level is. But the truth is, you know, there is a, and they have to ask that so that they can be able to uh, help you. If there was such a thing as a contentment level scale, and you might say, well, I'm, a, I'm at a three, or I'm at a five, you know what, I would say this, that if we took a contentment level, it would also equal our maturity level. If I'm only contentment, I only have contentment at, at a one, then honestly, my spiritual life is only at a one. But if I'm, boy, if I've got everything dialed in and I'm contented, then the truth is my spiritual life will also be a 10. Billy Graham said it this way. He said, if a person gets his attitude right about money, it will straighten out almost every other area of his life. Now, today's passage, the focus is money. There's all kinds of contentment and discontentment, but this one in particular has to do with our area of money. The average person in this room thinks, uh, according to statistics, 50% of their waking time about money, how to get it, how to keep it, how to spend it, how to get all I can and then to can it, and then sit on the can. <laughs> and that's what we want. Now, as we begin to talk about contentment and money, I think we need to make one clarification up front, because I think sometimes I've been guilty of leaving the impression, and I've certainly uh, read that from others and heard it from others, that somehow money is bad, or having money is bad, or rich people are bad, or something like that. Not at all. There is certainly nothing unscriptural about having money. There's nothing unscriptural about having a, a very nice lifestyle, or there's nothing especially spiritual about having not a lifestyle, a very good lifestyle. The fact is I've met many wealthy people who are wonderful stewards of their money, um, and I've met people who don't hardly have anything that, frankly, they're more greedy and think about money more than anybody else I think I've ever met. The issue is not the money. Like someone said, there's nothing wrong with people possessing riches. The wrong comes in when the riches possess the people. Money is like a gun. It can be used to get food for your family, for good things, protect against an invader, or it can be used to harm somebody, such is the case with money. Now, what triggered this 
encouragement that Paul wrote to Timothy from verses 6 to 10. Well, you have to go back to verse 5, and you'll find what he was speaking about. If you're there, you'll just see, you can just read it for yourself. But there the Apostle Paul said, there are these false teachers. The Apostle Paul was always watching. Boy, um, he wasn't uh, suspicious, but I'll tell you one thing. He had his one eye open all the time. I always, one of my most common prayers is, Lord, give me one, uh, give me one blind eye and one deaf ear. Help me to learn how to not react to everything and help me not to listen to everything. But Lord, give me one good eye that's watching everything and give me one good ear that's always listening because you never know. Boy, I tell you what, the devil can get into your marriage. He can get into your children's lives. And man, you got to keep one good eye on that situation all the time. And that's what Paul was saying here. He was saying these false teachers are coming along and they have this crazy philosophy about money. And they're trying to tell you that money equals spirituality and that somehow they're more spiritual because of all the things that they have. And in these verses, he gives us five dangerous and destructive facts about discontentment. Let's go through those. Number one, discontentment is destructive because it ignores true or genuine gain. Verse number six, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness, what is it? You might just write down godlikeness. That's what godliness is. It's just godlikeness. Where there is true godlikeness, then there'll be true contentment. Now, God is always content. The Bible teaches that God gets grieved. The Bible teaches uh, that uh, God gets angry at sin. And yet he maintains a self-sufficiency. And that's really what contentment is. It is a sufficiency in God. That's what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse number 5. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God. See that little statement with me, please. Our sufficiency is of God. Say it again. Our sufficiency is of God. Maybe personalize it. My sufficiency is of God. It's of God. I am content because God is my sufficiency. The overview of my life, anything good that I've accomplished, to God be the glory. Yes, I'm not going to say I haven't tried. I'm not going to say I haven't worked hard. But I will say this, that God gave me all the air. God gave me the strength. Without His ability, I couldn't do anything. He is my sufficiency. It's another way of simply saying, I find my contentment in God. I find all true sufficiency in God. He's the source of my godliness. My godlikeness creates in me a contentment. The more I read my Bible, the more content I get. The more I pray, the more content I get. The more I serve God, the more content I get. Because as I find God as my sufficiency, then I find contentment. How could we not? Because He is sufficient in and of Himself. He is all to himself. Riches are not really related to how much I have, but whether I'm content with what I have. I remember one of our dear saints that for years drove a church bus for us. His name was Albert Fine. Some of you know Albert, remember Albert Fine. He's with the Lord now, but he was from Texas and he moved out here many years ago. And 
He was just a very simple but uh, very wonderful brother in the Lord. He never had his job. He had a he was self-employed, and he was one of those tire hustlers. You know, he would pick up used tires and take them here and take them there, and he was the honest kind. And boy, more than one time, he provided us with wonderful tires for our cars, our vans, as he did for several of you, I'm sure, in this church. But I remember Brother Fine one time telling me he'd, he'd always kind of shake his head like this. He'd say, you know, preacher, he'd say, I found myself trying to think about when a person is rich. He said, I finally figured it out. He said, when I go home and I open the refrigerator and it's full of food, he said, I always feel so rich. That's it. Just that was his definition of rich. As long as my refrigerator is full, he felt rich. Now he was able to go without even a full refrigerator, but when it was full, man, he just felt so rich. Every year, Forbes magazine puts out a list of the top 500 richest people, or the top 100 richest people. And how they say it is, this person is worth this much. I think the number one worth now is the, uh, the uh, chairman and the owner, what do they call him, of, uh, of Amazon, Jeff Bezos, or Bezos. And uh, the guy is worth multiplied millions of dollars. And so they would say, he is worth this. And they'll talk about Bill Gates being worth this, or Walton being worth this. And I will tell you folks this morning, there is absolutely no way that we can measure our worth by the bottom line. It's an insult to God to say that we are worth what we own. God has made us valuable to Him. We have an eternal soul. Jesus died for each one of us. That makes us valuable. And I appreciate what Tiffany said here this morning. And I remind Tiffany and each one of us, we are valuable to God. He shed his blood for each one of us. We can never measure our worth by our bank account. There's something much more true than that. Luke 16, 11 says, If therefore ye have not been faithful and unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? True riches. The true riches, what are they? And it's nice to have a nice car. My little bug and me, we, we have quite a, you know, we have quite a relationship. And uh, when it gets hot for some reason, that sucker doesn't want to start. And I'll be stuck somewhere and I'll be sitting there wishing that I could be in my Honda car with my wife. And it always starts. It's such a nice car. But you know what? Um, the true riches, it's nice having a nice car, but that's not true riches. It's as nice as it is, not true riches. True riches are things like faith. That's what it says in James chapter 2 and verse 5. Rich in faith, heirs of a kingdom which he hath promised to them that love him. That is true riches. Are you full of faith? Then you are a rich person. Do you feel loved? You're a rich person. Do you feel that divine love? You're a rich person. 
Do you feel hope in your spirit this morning? Moments ago, we were singing about the hope that comes because of the chains fell off that Christ won for us at the victory. And he, boy, I tell you what, that's, those are riches. There are so many people that don't have that joy in their spirit. And so those are true riches. Cornelius Vanderbilt, one of the richest Americans who ever lived, said this, the care of millions of dollars is too great a load. There's no pleasure in it. Jacob Astor, America's first multimillionaire, said, I am the most miserable man on earth. Henry Ford, after making all of his millions, said, honestly, I was happier when I was doing a work as a mechanic. Now, the Greek philosophers in this day, which was pervading that entire Asia Minor as well as the Grecian Empire, basically was, if I make a lot of money, Somehow, I'm more virtuous. I'm more godly than others. And that's what Paul is saying here. He is saying, godliness is where contentment comes from. That's where great gain is. It's not our bottom line that will make us godly, and it's not our bottom line that will make us contained. There's nothing wrong with having money. Absolutely not. There's nothing wrong with having a beautiful lifestyle. But God is simply saying here, that doesn't equal true riches. It's not godliness, especially. And there was this philosophy going around that if you're godly, you'll be rich. Or if you're rich, you must be godly. And Paul's saying that really doesn't have anything to do with it. Now, if we follow good principles then in the Bible, then we might have a little more than we would have had if we, you know, messed things up. But God is promising us here that true riches like faith and joy and peace are the riches from God. I was reading a generational account from history this week about the power of choosing godliness over pleasure. Godliness, what effect does it have? Max Jukes, an atheist who lived an ungodly life. This historical lesson goes back actually to the 1700s. They followed his generations. He was an atheist, lived an ungodly life, married an ungodly woman. They had 550 descendants 310 of them died as paupers, 150 of them were criminals, seven were murderers, a hundred were drunkards, and more than half of the women were prostitutes. Compared to Jonathan Edwards, Jonathan Edwards one of the greatest preachers, really perhaps the single most influential man for the Constitution as far from a religious standpoint. Jonathan Edwards is an amazing preacher. He lived a godly life, married a godly woman. They had 1,394 descendants. 13 were college presidents, 65 were college professors, three were U.S. senators, 30 were judges, 100 were lawyers, 60 were doctors, 75 were army and navy officers, 100 were preachers and missionaries, 60 were authors, one was the vice president of the United States, eight were public officials, and 295 are college graduates, many of them who became state governors and U.S. ambassadors. That's the difference, Max Jukes. And when we, and Jonathan Edwards, when we have a godly life, we leave a heritage, true gain. And that's what Paul is saying here. He is saying, don't equate the things of this world with genuine riches. That's the first destructive effect of discontentment. The second one is, discontentment is destructive because it focuses on the temporal. Verse 7, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. 
Now, in the original Greek language here, this phrasing is powerful, and I think it bears thinking about. It is a very direct statement. Look at that word, nothing. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain. Notice those very those strong words, nothing, certain. This actual Greek phrasing here begins with the word nothing. Nothing in this world. Nothing we bring into this world. Nothing. We have nothing. It's like he's just shouting, nothing comes when we come into this world. We are born naked. I mean buck naked. We don't even have a name tag on. We, are, we have nothing when we come to this world. And here's what he says, we cert- and, and even more certain than that, we don't carry anything out. That's what Job said in the first chapter in verse 21, naked I came into this world, I'm going out the same way. The point is, life is temporal, life is transitory. To spend my life focused on money is to lock myself into something that is temporal. But when I think about eternal things, God allows me to have a more long-term viewpoint. Mark chapter 8 and verse 36, this is a powerful verse. One of the verses that over 40 years ago God used to confirm my call to the ministry. What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? I've hundreds, thousands of times, I suppose, I've shared this verse with people over the years. It's a lot of times just in passing. And they'll say, how did you become a minister? And what does it take to become a minister? And I'll say, well, I'll I'll tell you what happened to me. I was reading my Bible one day, and I read this verse. It said, I wanted to be a doctor, had a a scholarship to pre-med, and I thought that would be the best use of my life to help people in medicine. And I've always, for all these years, maintained a real uh, interest in the medical field. And that was my direction. But then God just put lights on this verse, along with a verse in 1 Corinthians where it says, woe unto me if I preach not the gospel. But here I was reading this verse and I realized, man, if I help a person as a doctor, you know, I cut out his gizzard and sew him back up, you know, and I do whatever you got to do to help those. You can tell I've been a good doctor. And, uh, but if that was the case, I mean, he dies and goes to hell. He's got a fixed gizzard, but he's lost. He spends the rest of his time in hell. I knew from me, God was saying, the best thing you can do is to help that person go to heaven. Now, I will bypass the medical if we can get to the spiritual. Now, I'd love to see a man get medically fixed, but I, and I, sometimes God can use that. And it's surprising how many times in the gospels that God interchanges the word whole and healing with salvation. I think there's a big, uh, there's a big connection between getting physically healed and spiritually saved. But here, God is reminding us that really all the wealth, all the fame, all the pleasure, but if a person doesn't have Christ, it's nothing. It's absolutely nothing. You may have heard of the man who was told that you can't take it with you. I mean, there's no way you can take it with you, but he decided he'd try. And so he put all of his money in a big jug, a handle on it, put it in the attic. And he felt like he was going to die in his house and The attic was right over his bedroom, and he figured on the way to heaven, he would snatch up that jug, and he would take it to heaven with him, and sure enough, he did die, and after everybody had come and gone, the wife went up to the attic, see if the jug was still there, and there it was. That jug of money was still in the attic, 
And she said, oh, well, maybe he should have put it in the basement. <laughs> and the uh, <laughs> fact is, we don't go to heaven with all of our money. And by the way, we don't go to hell with our money either. The fact is, we, the smartest thing we can do with our money is to exchange it for heavenly money. Amen. You know, all over Europe today, there's a big ripple about the currency, you know, which uh, currency do you use? Do you use, if you're in England, you know, they, you have to use the pound, and they certainly don't want the euro there after the Brexit, you know, and all kinds of issues. What, no matter what country we go to, we've been privileged to have been to several, and there are times when you can't, I mean, you can hold a dollar up, and I mean, they, well, you can't buy a thing. You have to have the right currency. Went to Thailand, it's the bot, and you go to Philippines, it's the peso, and you go to these other places and they have their own currency. The fact is, really, heaven's like that too. The fact is, heaven has its own currency. And what we have in our life and the money we have, we need to exchange it into a heavenly currency because American dollars don't spend in heaven. And all the, you say, well, I'm so rich. Folks, if, if we don't have heavenly dollars, we won't be able to spend it. It just won't work up there because it is heaven earthly dollars are temporal. We need to exchange them. Do something good, just like that dear family did with that piano for Camilla. They said, you know what? We want to use this for God. Use it for God. Discontentment is destructive because it ignores true gain. Discontentment is destructive because it focuses on the temporal. Number three, discontentment is destructive because it obscures the simplicity of life. Look at verse 8, and having food and raiment, let us therewith be content. Now food. You'd say, what does that mean in the Greek? It means in and out burgers. That's what it means, in and out burgers. But it does actually mean food. We're not, uh, there's nothing spiritualized here. It's just food. However, the word for clothes um, includes something we might call a cloak. You might remember in the Old Testament that God had some rules, practical rules about borrowing and lending and he reminded them that they need to be careful about taking a person's cloak because overnight. That's because they would use their big outer cloak as a tent, basically. And so you could certainly make a good point here to point out that our basic necessities are food, clothing, and a roof over our head. And so therefore, what we need in life is actually quite small. You'd say, well, pastor, I knew clothes were a need. That's why I need Prada shoes. And uh, no, you don't need that. That's not what it means. But clothes are certainly a need. And they're a need for so many reasons, uh, and for protection. And, and so God is saying here that having our needs met. And God is encouraging perspective in this verse to discern between needs and wants. Do you know the difference between a need and a want? You know, the basis of gratefulness is the expectation of really nothing. If I expect up here and I get here, I'm still going to be disappointed. But if I expect here and I get here, man, I'm going to be, wow, this is good. And so we know that expectations are really uh, a launching point to make us more grateful lower our expectations, you'll be much happier in life in so many areas. And it really becomes the foundation of my prayer. In Philippians chapter 4, Paul said, but my God shall supply 
all your what? Needs. And so needs become, defining needs become the basis of prayer. Defining needs become the basis for my joy in life. Needs versus wants. What are they? A true need is something essential to our well-being. You can write that down. A true need is something essential to our well-being, physical, emotional, mental. It is something without which we simply could not live. Now, if you want to get very detailed here, psychologist Abraham Maslow a famous, was famous for his hierarchy of needs. He did it in a pyramid. The bottom of the pyramid is our objective need. Now, everybody needs this. They need food, water, and shelter. Now, you can go to any culture, you can, male or female, it makes no difference, young or old. Everybody needs food, water, and shelter. Everybody needs that, without which we would die quite quickly. Those are objective needs. Everybody has them. Then there are subjective needs. That's the next level of the pyramid. They're very, very much part of what we need in a sense, but in real sense, there's still a want. And that is the need to belong, to be part of a family or a community, the need to give and receive love. The need to give and receive love is so ingrained in us. There are, are people who are locked in cells or in solitary confinement that will make a friend of a little rat or something. Or it just our need to love something or be loved is a great need. Now, it's not a basic need. And that's what God's defining here. He's saying, you know, if you want to, if you want to learn how to be happy in life, if you want to learn how to be grateful, you have to discern between a want and a need. Now, for example, I've got to go to work tomorrow. I have to be there at 8 o'clock. I need my car to start. No, actually, you want your car to start. It's not actually a need. There are other ways to get to work. You could start out at 4 a.m. and walk. <laughs> you, could, uh, you could, you know, call Uber. Um, you could get on a little, uh, little motorcycle. There's other ways to get there, but we think we need. Now, truth is, in this day and age, this society, it is a pretty, it's a, it's a want that's way up there. I'm, I won't uh, deny that. But here's the big rub. When we begin to visualize and articulate things as needs that are wants, we are setting ourselves up for discontentment. That's why God is saying, just learn to be content with the basics. Everything else is gravy. That's the, that's the meat and potatoes. Everything else is gravy. If I can learn to live, you know what? I got food. I got water. I got a roof over my head. That's all I need. And the strange thing about this whole thing is there are people who make just tons of money. They come to the end and realize, you know what I want to do? I just want to go live on an island. And all I want is food clothing, and a roof over my head. It's crazy. It's been the whole life so you can go live on an island. You've been trying to get all that money. Fact is, if we'd start that way, we'd be happy the whole time, the whole journey. There was an Amish man in Pennsylvania, Dutch country, who stopped farming one day to watch a young couple who was moving into a house across the road. Among the items the delivery van unloaded were computers, every kind of a computer you'd ever seen. Appliances galore, state-of-the-art home entertainment system, 10 TVs, a hot tub, you name it, this couple had it. 
The following day, the Amish man and his wife welcomed the new residents into the neighborhood. They walked over and brought them a loaf of fresh baked bread and a jar of homemade jam. At the conclusion of the visit, the Amish man told the new neighbor, hey, look, he said, if anything should go wrong with your computers, anything go wrong with your hot tub, anything go wrong with any of your appliances, anything go wrong with any of those things you have, don't hesitate to call me. The young man looked at him and said, well, that's very neighborly of you. I didn't even realize you knew how to repair all these modern gadgets. He said, well, I don't know how to repair them. But maybe when they happen to break down, I can show you how to live without them. And you know what? That's exactly what we need to learn to do. A lot of times, just learn to live without something. The fundamental question, which might just soar our contentment, is this. Can I survive without this? Yes, then it's a want. Really, it's a preference. It may be a very high on my objective need list, but it's really, in, in all fairness, it would tempt to actually be a want. Number four, discontentment is destructive because it leads to sinful entrapment. Verse nine, but they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare into many hurtful and foolish lusts, excuse me, foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in perdition and destruction. Notice those who will be. See that little part? They that will be. They make a decision in their will. I'm going to be rich. I will be rich. My friend, that is a dangerous, dangerous thing to say because the devil hears it and the devil will say, all right, you will be rich. Will you be rich at the expense of your marriage? Will you be rich at the expense of your family? Will you be rich at the expense of your integrity? Will you be rich at the at no matter the cost, will you be rich? All right, then, if that's what you want, I'll give it to you. And I'll tell you one thing, the devil will make sure that he just keeps feeding us ways to be rich. But the Bible says if we will be rich, regardless of whatever it means, then we fall into temptations and snares. We become so compulsive, we can't even hardly have a, a good life. Lord, the Bible says foolish and hurtful lusts. Foolish illogical. That's what the foolish means. Foolish, irrational, animalistic, just like you're acting crazy. <laughs> just, you're nuts. You're so pursuing this thing, you're like a dog trying to get a old bone or something. My goodness. Foolish, illogical, irrational, not even thinking straight. Foolish, just foolish what people will do. And hurtful. You'd say, well, all I'm hurting is myself. If that were the case, that'd still be tragic. But the fact is, we so often hurt so many others. It says it drowns men in destruction and perdition. Drowning. One interesting word picture. That's not the word for a ship maybe you know, hitting something. And then like sometimes we see some ship will get, you know, have its bow hurt or they'll kind of limp into the port. No, the Bible, the word here is a totally submerged. We become submerged in destruction. We destroy our own lives physically, mentally, emotionally, relationships. God said, if you will be rich no matter what, you're just going to destroy everything. And that's sad enough. But then God adds the word perdition. What is this word perdition? 
It is the very same as in Romans, excuse me, Revelation 17, 8, where the Bible says that the false prophet and the beast are submerged in a lake, a hell of hells, the lake of fire. All those who do not trust Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, the Bible says they are cast, they are submerged into perdition. They are put in a place where it is a terrible, irreversible loss. That's what it says in Proverbs chapter 11, verse 4, riches profit not in the day of wrath. There's nothing that can help us in that day. Judgment day. People get all worried about the IRS. Tell you what, folks, we, we haven't seen anything yet. You ought to be more worried about facing God and facing what we're going to do with our money, as he says here. Discontentment is destructive because it leads to sinful entrapment. And number five, it is destructive because it is the source of all evil. Look at verse 10. The love of money is the root of all evil. Now, don't say money is the root of all evil. Actually, as we saw earlier with Camilla here, money can do so much good. It's not money. It's the love of it. It's the root. Look at, uh, look at all the junk that's going on in our country. Look at all the tragedy that's going on in this world. Follow the money. You may... If you're old enough, remember a movie called All the President's Men, starring Robert Redford back in the 70s when I was going to college. And in that, they were talking about corruption and how to find out who was responsible for what was going on in the government. And the statement that people have become a catchphrase in America, and that is this, follow the money. Just follow the money and you'll find out who is responsible follow the money. 2,000 years ago, Jesus said the same thing. He said, follow the money. It's go to the, find any evil you have, find corruption, find whatever evil there is, find uh, sexual sin, find people who are doing whatever there is. The Bible says at the base of it, it is the money, every conceivable sin. How do I know if I love money too much? Here's a five-fold test. Number one, I love money when I spend more time thinking about money than I do how to do a good job. Do you think more about the money or doing a good job? One of the things I decided early in my ministry is I would never put a price on my ministry. I have never. People have asked over the years, do you charge? Nope. Do you have a set fee? Nope. What do you want? I never have had a set fee ever. Now, that's put me in some pretty interesting situations, I will tell you for sure. But thank God He's always taking care of me. Number two, I love money when I never have enough. I mean, it just makes no difference. I never have enough. I'm good. It's kind of like getting tattoos, you know. You're good for one tattoo, but a couple months later, you've got to have a second one. There's some little association with the, the desire of it. and any, It's like I got to have this car. And then a few months later, I got to have this car or I got to have this situation. I'm never satisfied. It's like drinking salt water. The more you drink, the more thirsty you get. It doesn't satisfy. Number three, I love money when I like to flaunt it. One of the biggest mistakes we make, especially if you're a young person, a millennial, (laughs) and it's a stupid thing that most of us have done, and that is to buy things in order to prove your worth to people. To buy something in order to prove you're somebody, somebody you may not even know, (laughs) 
People buy things all over because I don't want them to think I'm like this. I need to have this kind of a car, this kind of a house because of who I am. And I hate to confess, but confession is good for the soul. Forty-five years ago, I think it was, uh, we had been married just a couple of years and married to my childhood bride, Lynette, and uh, I had seen uh, some very successful people in the church I was attending that uh, had a big, beautiful cars, and they had nice clothes, and I noticed that uh, the, the wife, uh, several of the wives, had these big, beautiful rings. Now, I honestly never had even thought about a ring before. Much of them, we uh, were very uh, meager with the things we had, but boy, I saw and something, that ring just, I mean, it just, as a single, solitary diamond, it just poking way up high. And I never seen anything that's so beautiful. And I thought, man, and they were successful. That's what they wore. I thought, that's what you need to have to be successful. And so I asked the lady, where did you get that ring anyway? And so she told me, and so I took Lynette over there, and she was a good wife, and she said, okay, I'll go with you. She really didn't want to go, didn't want anything so ostentatious, but uh, I saw that, and of course, you know, I mean, a diamond is a woman's best friend, and she's hard for her to say no to a big, beautiful diamond. But the fact was, uh, it was all on me. I wanted her to have that. I wanted to be successful. I wanted to impress people. And uh, of all things, of course, didn't have the money for it. And so I put it, uh, I got a Bank America charge card and put a diamond ring on a Bank America charge card just so I could impress people. And I'm telling you what, folks, I know nobody in this building has ever done anything so stupid in all your life, have you? And uh, never done something like that. So I'm feeling, I'm feeling a little lonely up here. Nobody's looking at me. Everybody's kind of saying, boy, that pastor, that's a bad, bad pastor. And, uh, but it's true, I did it. And uh, we had that stinking ring for a couple of years until uh, we moved up here to Stockton. And uh, we got up here. We were, had our little salary from the church. And, man, I'm telling you, uh, we were busted. And of all things, had to make that stupid payment on that <laughs> ring. Oh, my goodness. So I said, okay, honey, that ring's got to go. And I'm telling you what, the day I told her that, she had a whole new spiritual growth in her life. She said, oh, she said, that thing has, I've always felt wrong about that. She said, I never, I just like, like a barrier between me and the Lord. And so we went down and hawked it at some place down on Main Street in Stockton. And uh, I don't know how many more months or years it took us to pay off that stupid bill. But I'll tell you what, we have never done that one. Never, never used a charge card ever again, ever for anything other than, of course, you use it for your reward points, but pay it off, you know, every week or every month or whatever. But I tell you what, I tell you what, what a, what a terrible thing to just say, I'm going to flaunt it. I love money when I will sin to obtain it. Pad your expense account, pull money out of the till, compromise your convictions. You know it's not right. Anytime I will sin to get money, then I love I love money more than I love righteousness. And then the ultimate test. I love money when I resent giving it. That's the ultimate test. It kills you to give money. I mean, it just, 
you get irritable, you don't like it, you know, get ticked off when the pastor preaches on it, you get irritable, people mention it. Why? Well, it makes sense. Your viewpoint is that it's your money, it's for your own gratification, and if I give it away, I won't have it anymore. The basic question is really not how much of our money should we give to God, but how much of God's money should we keep for ourselves? Don't be a Demas. Second Timothy chapter 4 and verse 10, Demas has forsaken me. Well, I'll tell you one thing. How would you like to have your name in Scripture as the person who abandoned, who went AWOL? Now, why would God name this Christian? Because he wanted us to be all be warned. 2,000 years later, Demas forsook me. Paul said, I'm in prison. And he forsook me. I mean, he just, he walked out on me. And that's just like the devil. When you're at your lowest time, he'll kick you, boy. That happened to me at my lowest season of my entire life. And I wouldn't be jiggered if that would be exactly the time. God will have somebody just disloyal or abandoned. Demas forsook me. Why? Because he loved this present world. He just couldn't think about heavenly things anymore. Was it a girl in Thessalonica? Was it a girl? He ran to Thessalonica. Was it money? Was it the nightlife? I've told you before and I've said it always just crushes me to think of people who at one time were serving God and are now just wherever. And I think, what did you trade? Really? You traded your little things you can put on Instagram? Sitting there with a wine glass or whatever, sitting in some pool somewhere? That's what you traded for what you used to do singing for God? Wow. Man. I cannot even imagine such a poor value, terrible value. The love of money, I mean, it gets the best. As I mentioned, I'm certainly guilty myself. Demas, don't be a Demas, don't be a Judas who chose gold over God for 30 lousy pieces of silver and a few moments of feeling rich. He sold out his entire eternity. Notice what Paul said here in this verse. He said, they pierced themselves through with many sorrows. The actual Greek word there is a, is a long spit. They would put through an animal and put on a, like a rotisserie. He said, they have from top to bottom, they just run a long skewer through your own body. How silly. With Jesus, he's everything I need. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Our hands are bowed this morning.